You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're in Matthew, continuing with the Sermon on the Mount. So if you turn with me, if you want to read along to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, I will read the scriptures and then we'll pray for God's help. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. This is God's word, so please give your attention to it. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rusts destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have to hear your word. And I pray that we would indeed hear your words. I pray that... Uh, each person here, you know, O oh Lord, what is in their hearts and minds and the things that are going on in their lives. You know the hardships, the sufferings, the temptations, the sins, uh, the victories, and the comforts. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would apply your word to each person, that the Spirit would help each one of us to see, to know you, the only true God and your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would apply these words to us as a Lord. We need it. Uh, we can be so slow to understand the things that you would have or so slow to trust and obey. And I pray that you would help us in all these things, that we would know what it is to delight in you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, back in 1985, two Midwestern energy companies, they merged. And within 10 years, um, they were so successful, this merger, this new company, they were so successful that Fortune magazine called them America's most innovative company. And they got that um, honor, that title, that badge, for the next six years, they were considered one of Wall Street's darlings, uh, one of these kind of favored companies that people were encouraged to invest in, right? Because this company 
was the future, right? Um, with them, you could become more and more wealthy. So in 2000, their stocks had reached the point of $90 per share. For those of you who do any investing, you know what that means. However, one of the things was is that what looked great on paper was just that. It was only on paper because this company had figured out a somewhat elaborate system of cooking the books. They looked a lot better than they actually were. By the end, so at 2000, they've got 90 bucks a share. By the end of the following year, 2001, each share was worth 26 cents. Okay? In four years, this company lost $74 billion for its shareholders. Several of the executives were under criminal investigation and ended up being tried and found guilty of numerous criminal charges. In fact, their, uh, their um, accounting firm was also indicted, found guilty, and so that's the, the, the rough stuff for the rich and powerful, right? But a ton of employees, right? The normal people that didn't call those kind of Cheap shots, not involved in the scandal, lost tons of money as well. Pensions were lost. You know, ordinary, in one sense, innocent people lost out when the company tanked. And the story I have just told you, uh, this incredible riches to rags story, is none other than the Enron scandal, for those of you who can remember that far back. Uh, a story of greed, lies, and devastation, right? Uh, definitely uh, became a moral tale for uh, America as far as um, how to put your trust in the right things or the wrong things, right? And of course, our passage this morning uh, deals with money, deals with treasure, which Jesus talked quite a bit about. Uh, more than some other topics. And so, um, I, I have a feeling that the things Jesus is going to say will make us uncomfortable. And I would like to look at really two things. Uh, the first point is just think big. Jesus wants us to think big. And then the second thing is I want to consider our condition. Jesus seems to want us to think big, and then he's going to help us do a self-assessment, right, to think about where we're investing, okay? And so we'll look at a few uh, things under this considering our condition. So let's first think big or long-term, depending on how you want to put it. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus makes a stark 
contrast between two places that you might invest, for those of you who are considering investing, heaven or earth. Um, but Jesus doesn't say, I've got two great options for you, one here and one there. He says, no, here are the two options, and don't do this one, but do this one. Jesus goes straight for a, a very keen temptation that probably not a single person in this room will at least at some point not encounter. So, real quick, what is earthly treasure? Well, Jesus, you know, treasure, like, right, like, this is not a pirate ship story, right? Uh, what do we mean by treasure? Well, moths, right, eat stuff, they eat clothes, cloth, garments, you know, your curtains, if you invest lots in curtains. Um, rust is a rough translation for anything that kind of eats something that you might value. Uh, it's not actually rust like metal rust. It's more like vermin getting in and eating your food stores. So for those of you who like to, when Fruity Pebbles goes on sale and you like to stockpile, uh, don't do that because uh, mice will get into your pantry, right? Thieves break in and steal. Or in the ancient world, they'd dig into the ground or dig through your wall and whoosh, there it goes, your little treasure chest. Because they don't have banks the way we would put all our precious valuables in a bank. Uh, people had to find creative ways to protect the, the goods that they had. So treasure is your clothes, your money, anything that is precious to you. Um, it is vulnerable, Jesus says, in this life. Uh, and then he says at the end in verse um, 24, you cannot serve God and wealth, or mammon, if you've heard that word, right? Property. Jesus covers all sorts of things in this passage. Because we tie so much to those things, right? We don't just want money because we like how it shimmers, you know? We're not like monkeys that just are attracted to things that like, oh, it, it, glit it glistens. We're attracted to things because they bring us pleasure and enjoyment, right? With a lot of money, you can go to, take your pick, great vacations, awesome concerts, great food, travel. On a, it can free you from pain if you have lots of money frequently. Though cancer, right? or some terminal illness that they haven't figured out a cure for, right, that, that can take away the rich and powerful just as well as anybody else. Social status, right? Lots of money or clothes can make you look better to other people. Having lots of money can even make you look religiously better to other people, right? We love so-and-so because they give so much to our organization. Put the name on the front of your church, right? You can buy you education. With great wealth comes great power usually. There's all sorts of reasons we are attracted to these things and we think that it can promise so much. But Jesus says it won't last. You can't count on it. 
And when you think about how quickly Enron grew and then collapsed in less than 20 years, and you think about how long humans have been on the earth, it, was a, it wasn't even a flash in the, the pan. It wasn't even a blink. And yet, how many people were riding that wave and thinking it was going to be awesome? Wall Street certainly thought so. And so, they just proved Jesus right. It's not going to last. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus says, don't invest here on earth, but in heaven. Because all that stuff, all the vulnerabilities of all that stuff, it doesn't even get touched. Moth, rust, thieves, heaven doesn't have them. Which, if someone were to approach you and say, I have got an investing deal for you. I've got two companies. One, I know for an absolute fact, is going to tank. But I have one that is an absolute certainty. And you will become fabulously wealthy. And if this person really could make that guarantee, you would be an absolute idiot to not go with the thing that's going to last. You'd be like, you know what, I just like, I like the gamble. You're like, wait, 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 we're not talking about gambling, we're talking about a sure thing. Like, no, 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 I, I wanna go with this risky option. You should be like, what, a fool, okay? Now, here's the thing, there are plenty of people out there that would say, <laughs> okay, Jesus, great moral teacher, but that whole put stuff in heaven is pie in the sky. That's just a, a way that rich people use to put poor people down, right? Dangle heaven out in front of them while we take their money. Now, if there is no God, there is no Jesus, and Jesus didn't die for your sins, then yep, Jesus is wrong. But I don't think he's wrong, okay? Religion is not, well, some religion is the opiate of the masses, but Jesus' religion is not. Now, what's heavenly treasure? This seems a little bit more intangible, right? What on earth are we talking about when we talk about heavenly treasure? Well, if you actually read the verses that have just come before, and for those of you who are just joining us this morning, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we just looked at Jesus talking about um, giving to the poor, Prayer and fasting has just come before this. And Jesus has actually said that you can get rewards for these things if you don't do them in front of people in particular. He's also said in the Sermon on the Mount that the meek will inherit the earth. It seems that the treasures that Jesus is talking about with regards to heaven is the earth and the new creation when God shows up and sets up his kingdom on earth and removes all competitors, as well as two other things. Giving to the poor is pretty high on Jesus' list for getting treasures in heaven. And cultivating your relationship with God. Those are like the two big ones. And just to prove the point, if you read just previously in Matthew, you can see this. But also, if you jump to Luke chapter 12, for example, in a very parallel passage to ours, Luke chapter 12, verses 32 and 34, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is exactly the same thing we've got here. Luke just clarifies that by giving to those in need is one way you invest in heavenly treasure. Okay? That's number one. Number two is cultivating your relationship with God. So, Luke chapter 12, once again, verses 13 through 15, Jesus says to them, Take care and be a guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he goes on to tell a story about a guy who's fabulously wealthy. And he's so wealthy, he just has to keep building barns to store all the crops that he's getting. And he's then finally like, I have made it. I have enough barns. I am set. I can retire. And I will live an easy life. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have repaired, prepared, all your barns, whose will they be? They're not yours anymore. And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's interesting that this guy stores up these barns and it's said that he's not rich towards God. His mindset was totally, all of his wealth was for himself and his comfort. Now, real quick, What we're talking about with regards to treasures in heaven is not earning your salvation, just to be clear. Jesus makes a stark distinction between how you are saved and this whole notion of treasures, okay? And we just saw this actually in Luke 12, where Jesus says, before he says to give to the poor, he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is given to you. You don't earn the kingdom, okay? So let's just get that out of the way. There's no way on earth anyone in here is going to make enough heavenly treasure that you will earn some special spot in heaven. That is given to you. That is God graciously giving that to you because it is the poor in spirit who inherit the earth, okay? So Jesus is saying, don't do this. Invest here, okay? And here in America, we just have to say that this passage introduces to us an uphill battle. One of the wealthiest nations, if not the wealthiest nation in the world, right? And we love stories about people that go from rags to riches. We put it in front of ourselves every day. We dangle that carrot out there. If only I hit it big, right? gambling or you know maybe you know if i start get my internet startup business i can be like you know i don't know pick your wealthy person i can be like gates or cuban or whoever and if maybe you 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 don't want to put in the energy to actually being rich you're one of those people that will settle for going to the library to get books 
out on millionaires and billionaires and read about how people are rich, or you watch TV shows about the rich and famous, right? We just are fascinated by wealthy people. We want to see their yachts, their houses, the fame, the seeming peace and calm that they enjoy, stress-free living. I don't know if you ever have noticed that anytime you look at almost any advertisement for clothing, like every single model you look at seems so cool and detached. They have not a care in the world. As if the clothes they wear makes them stress-free. Just put on a little Polo Ralph Lauren outfit and you sitting on the beach, you can't worry about anything. And here's the thing about what Jesus says. It doesn't really matter in one sense whether you are rich or poor. A rich person can be addicted to wealth just as much as a poor person. They're looking at the same thing. It's just that one person has a lot more of it than the other. However, there is a, 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 curious, a curious reality that it does seem that sometimes the less you have, the more generous you are. That's not always the case. But it is often surprisingly the case. And here's the other thing. It's not that Jesus is not saying you shouldn't save and plan. However, for those of us who are likely to take that and be like, oh, good, I was starting to get worried that I'd have to like give away money or something. Don't let yourselves off the hook. The, prior, the question is the true priority, okay? And that brings us to our second point. What is your condition? Jesus is going to help us to evaluate whether or not you are a heaven investor or whether you are an earth investor, okay? So, one thing that he points out, and we're going to not do this quite in order, but look at verse 24, where Jesus is going to talk about the nature of your service and your master. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or wealth, depending on your translation. Have you ever tried to work more than one job? Especially, like, if both of them are near, like, the closer they get to full-time, you know, we're not talking, like, a major job and then, like, a two-hour side gig. We're talking, like, 25 and 25, 30 and 30, you know, 30 and 20. It, it, it just is mentally exhausting. And in the ancient world, you could actually find slaves that were, in fact, working for two masters on occasion. Both of their time was owed. But Jesus says that you cannot, he says no one can serve two masters. He just says no one can. It's not possible. And then by the end of it, he actually gets real personal. He says, you, he says to you are not able to serve God and wealth. He makes it, in case you thought you might get past that first no one can serve two masters, you're like, well, you know what, Jesus, I am the exception to that rule. And he says, no, no, you cannot. And we'll come back to why you cannot in a moment. So one of the questions for assessing your condition is, are you laboring under two masters? Are you feeling torn between, I want money and I want Jesus. I want both. I want I want everything that is offered out there. 
And Jesus says, that's not the deal I'm cutting. Let's look at another way to assess our condition. Look at verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is ominous as well as ridiculously tricky to figure out what on earth is he talking about. What is this whole, the eye is the lamp of the body, and how can your eye be good or bad? What, what is Jesus talking about here? And let's just put it out there that the commentators are not very agreed on this one, okay? But I think that we can hopefully move towards some clarity. As far as this whole eye being the lamp of the body, it seems like there's kind of two options. It could be, right, that your eyes help you just get around, navigate life, right? That's pretty much, right, if, if you close your eyes and, or it's dark in the house, right, and you, a baby's crying, right, and you're like, oh, I've got to go do so, you know, and you're just like stumbling around, your eyes haven't adjusted to the light, uh, right? It's just basic navigation is one possibility. But the Bible often refers to spiritual health and spiritual insight as light, right? So, which would make sense, right? So not just physical navigation, but the ability to actually get around the world spiritually and not stumble in the darkness. You find that particularly in John's Gospel. So it's something along those lines, it seems. Now, he then says that if the eye is healthy... And if you read translations, you'll get if the eye is healthy versus unhealthy, if the eye is um, good versus diseased, uh, if the eye is good versus bad. Like, th this word for healthy is actually kind of tricky because it seems that uh, the translators have just tried to, when they use the word good, for example, just trying to use something very broad. Because it seems that this, the, the most basic definition would be that if your eye is simple or singular like what on earth and it seems that it's referring to singularity of vision if your eye is set on one thing the opposite word would be duplicity and what's interesting about this whole singularity of vision is that Jesus has just contrasted um, fasting, praying, giving to the poor with hypocrisy. Those who are hypocrites do this. But here, I want you to be singular in your focus. And if that's the case, you're, you're, you are full of light. You can see. You can see the realities of the spiritual realities of the world. On the flip side, if your eye is bad and unsound, it means you're in trouble. Right? If, if you have trouble seeing, you're, you're really in the dark. Now, here's what's striking about this word for your eye being unsound, bad, or whatever, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 8 through 10, we actually get a description of the eye 
as being bad. And here is what we find in Deuteronomy 15, and I'll just read to you verses 8 through 10, but this whole section actually is helpful for understanding our passage. But you shall open your hand to him, that is your poor neighbor, and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, and in the, the Hebrew peoples had this law that every seven years, debts were canceled. You could never go for more than seven years under the, under the burden of debt. So, um, if don't watch out that there's a thought in your heart that the seventh year of release is near, and your eye, what does it say? Your eye look grudgingly or evilly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. It seems that this whole notion of the eye being singular and the eye being bad, the eye being bad being ungenerous, a heart closed off to your brother in need. And this makes sense, actually, in the context, right? Jesus is talking about money, and he's saying you can't serve two masters, don't be duplicitous, and be generous. That there's actually something about your spiritual condition tied to how you use your money. So if your eye is bad or evil, which it's supposed to be, right? The eye is supposed to be the lamp of the body. If it's bad, how, how dark is that darkness for you? Think of a scary movie or a scary moment in a movie, right? Your hero, your favorite character, side character usually, terrified, running through the darkness, being chased by alien, monster, dinosaur, flashlight in hand, suddenly the battery, it's blinking, and it goes out. And you are like, that person is toast. Because they are running in the dark from a monster. That is the spiritual condition of the ungenerous person. Toast. How deep is that darkness? So consider your condition. Do you see clearly, singularly? Or is your eye bad? And here's the last thing to consider as we consider our condition. What is the condition of our hearts? Because this is what Jesus is drilling down into, right? What's in your heart? What has captured your affections? And this is actually emphasized all throughout this passage. Notice the emphasis on the interior of the person. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there is where your heart is. Or verse 24, listen to this. No one can serve two masters, 
And why? It's not, Jesus says, because you'll run out of time or energy. Listen to what Jesus says, why you cannot serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. If you've worked two positions or worked for two, bo- two bosses, inevitably you will like one more than the other. And it doesn't have to do with how much time you have. You just be like, this guy's way better. Or she's much easier to work with. It is your affections that deals with whether or not you can serve two masters. And Jesus is saying, God doesn't want to share your affections with money. And to be honest, who really wants that? Who in this room, for example, if you became fabulously rich and famous, wants someone that will marry you for your money and your fame? Who here would be like, yeah, I'll just, I'll just take that person who cares nothing for me and just wants all my dollars? No one. No one wants that. And God doesn't want it either. So what do you love? Do you have undivided service, heart towards God? Or are you constantly being pulled in multiple directions because you want other things? Jesus challenges us to think big, right? Too many people, even when it comes to investing, people tend to think short-term, quick as buck. A smart investor thinks how long, how far I'm planning Over the long haul, I want to make money, right? And Jesus is saying the exact same thing to everybody. Listen to me. Not here. Think long term. Think big. Enron showed what the love of money can really do. Sometimes you feel like the rich and famous just like have great lives. Fortunately, every now and again, something like Enron happens. You realize, well, maybe not. At all costs, they pursued wealth, right? And when it starts to slip, they start covering it up. And the corruption gets them. Now, how on earth do we change our affections? How do you go from being someone who is enslaved to money to someone who is excited to invest in Jesus' project? Notice that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually tells us. He tells us about the Father. He tells us about the Father. That this father knows what you need. He'll look out for you. This father will give you the kingdom out of his sheer good pleasure. And let's just say that he's also fabulously wealthy. Where he runs the show, there are no moths, there's no rusting, and there's no thieves. He runs a tight and clean ship, no leaks. 
no problems. And he's adopted you. He is eternal, he is powerful, and he is also good. Christ, throughout the sermon, points you to the good things of the Father in order to woo you to the Father. Because if you put your treasures in heaven, why would you put your treasures in heaven? It's not simply because God's a great banker and can look out for all your investments. It's because that's where God is. That's where the Father is. His identity is our Father in heaven. You want your affections to go where the Father is. So, we, we so often read the Sermon on the Mount with this sense of, okay, Jesus, what do I need to do? Just tell me, put it on the checklist. And Jesus actually is telling you, I want to tell you what the kingdom is like. I want to tell you what the Father is like, and I want you to love the Father. And Jesus, throughout his entire life, continually points people to the Father and to the goodness of the Father. And there's all sorts of things that are complicated about the sermon as well, because Jesus also says, if you follow me, it's going to get rough and hard. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. You're like, he's got to have some really big payoff if that's the message he's selling us. And the Spirit points us then to Christ, right? Because Christ will suffer and die for you. He's the kind of king that will suffer and die for you. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, set your minds on things that are above. But he doesn't stop there. He says, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is seated. And Christ is seated next to the Father. And Christ sits next to the Father and says, that's one of ours. That's, that's ours. So the only way you will be able to invest in heaven is not simply because you think like the goods are greater, but if you know the Father. And you only know the Father through Christ. So what we need to do as a church, as brothers and sisters, is we have to help each other see all the things that are wonderful about Jesus. All the things that are wonderful about the Father. Because otherwise, you're just going to hold on to your stuff if you don't realize how great it could be. I want to close with a quote. from a pastor who's long been dead and is enjoying Christ. When he's, he's reflecting on where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and this is what he says. Christ lays down an opposite principle that wherever men imagine the greatest happiness to be, there they are surrounded and confined. Hence it follows that they who desire to be happy in the world renounce heaven. We know how carefully the philosophers conducted their, their studies with respecting the supreme good. 
It was the chief point on which they gave all of their efforts, and rightly so. For it is the principle that on which the regulation of your entire life depends, and the object to which all of our senses are directed. If honor, if your honor, your fame, your reputation is reckoned the supreme good, the minds of each person are wholly occupied with ambition. You will look out for how you can get the next bit of recognition from everyone. If it is money, covetousness will immediately predominate in your life. If it is pleasure, it will be impossible to prevent men from sinking into brutal indulgence. We have all a natural desire to pursue happiness. And the consequence is that false imaginations, fairy tales that you make up in your mind about what is the most happy thing, carry us away in every direction. But if we were honestly and firmly convinced that our happiness is in heaven, it would be easy for us to trample upon the world to despise earthly blessings by the deceitful attractions of which the greater part of men are fascinated and to rise towards heaven. For this reason, Paul, with the view of exciting believers to look upwards and of exhorting them to meditate on the heavenly life, he presents them Christ, in whom alone they ought to seek perfect happiness, thus declaring that to allow their souls to grovel on the earth would be inconsistent and unworthy of those whose treasure is in heaven. Jesus puts before you this morning nothing less than the question of what is your supreme happiness? And only he can satisfy that happiness. So think big. Consider your condition. What is in your heart? What grips you with regards to money? What do you think it can get you? That Christ can't get you. I've never yet met a banker who would die for you. So let us contemplate Jesus. And as we do so, as we draw near to the Father then our generosity in this life will be unleashed as we invest in what is to come. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would free our hearts. We are so easily trapped by thinking that money can get us anything that we want or thinking that it will last. We're so easily fooled and so short-sighted. But I do pray that we would, as a church, come to a place where we actually can enjoy Christ and realize that He is not full of hot air that the things that he says are true 
that the promise of heaven and the new creation is true and that that is a much better life. For those of us who want a certain lifestyle, we want to have certain brands. We want people to think of us a certain way. I pray, Heavenly Father, you would set us free. And I pray that we would know that that freedom comes from you and not from ourselves. Please loose the grip that the world has on us. That we might be not only heavenly minded, but of actual earthly good for your purposes, for your kingdom's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.